as we deep dive into these chilling tales. We all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where recess mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens, recess mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water. It's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of foul play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon. Letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash Shane to get 15% off Recess Mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. Many of us have built up a certain numbness to murders and heinous crimes, so much that some stories just don't shock us anymore. The world is full of horrifying stories, and we've become desensitized with time. The story of Lizzie Borden's family, however, is still one that can shake the strongest of hearts. We began in 1892. A wealthy banker and his second wife were murdered with a hatchet in their Fall River house. Lizzie Borden, the banker's unmarried 32-year-old daughter, became the key suspect in the investigation. Lizzie was active in the religious community, and as a young lady, tutoring in Sunday school and educating children of new immigrants. She served as a secretary treasurer in the Christian Endeavor Society. Lizzie participated in modern social movements, like the Woman's Christian Temperance Union, She also belonged to the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. It seemed highly unlikely that Lizzie would ever resort to an act of violence. But isn't it usually the case? A caring young woman, a servant to society, eventually feels undervalued and decides to control her own narrative? After all, Andrew, her father, married Abby Duffrey Gray just three years after Lizzie's mother, Sarah, died. It wouldn't have been easy for her to adjust to the change. She only referred to Abby as Miss Borden, even after the marriage, believing that Abby only married her father for his money. And so, Lizzie and her older sister, Emma Borden, rarely ever ate with her father and stepmother, keeping their distance. 
Despite being the descendant of affluent and influential local inhabitants, her father, who was of English and Welsh origin, grew up in relatively modest conditions and suffered financially as a young man. After making and selling furniture caskets, Andrew became a wealthy property developer. He was the president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. He was also a director of various text mills and held significant commercial property. His estate was estimated at $300,000 at the time of his death. Andrew was recognized for his modesty despite his fortune. The Borden Mansion, for example, lacked indoor plumbing, even though it was pretty standard for wealthy households to have it at the time. It was in a wealthy neighborhood, but mostly affluent individuals of Fall River, including Andrew's relatives, usually resided in the more fashionable area of the hill, which was further away from the city's industrial regions. In the months leading up to the killings, tensions had been building within the Borden family, particularly over Andrew's gifts of real estate to several of Abby's relatives. After Abby's sister got a house, Lizzie and Emma demanded they receive a rental property. Still, they didn't want just any home. They wanted the home they had lived in until their mother died. They bought this property from Andrew for a dollar, and a few weeks before the murders, they sold it to him for 5000 Compared to today, that amounts to about $160,000. It was odd, and the reason for doing this was unclear, but Andrew went through with it. A few days later, John Vencombe, Lizzie and Emma's uncle from their mother's side, paid a visit to Andrew Borden to talk business. Many theorists have given their two cents on John's visit, especially since he arrived a day before the killings. It seems their conversation was around property transfer, and it aggravated an already hostile situation. In addition, even before John arrived, the entire household had fallen sick. A family colleague believed the cause was the food left on the stove to be used in meals over several days. Still, some did suspect it could have been poison, since Andrew was a powerful and rather unpopular man. Shortly after, on August 4, 1892, Andrew and Abby Borden were found hacked to death in their home. Andrew was found in a pool of blood on the living room couch, and Abby was upstairs, her head smashed to pieces. When investigators began, suspicion fell on Lizzie and their maid Bridget Sullivan, who was home when the bodies were found. Lizzie was soon charged, based purely on circumstantial evidence. As if the news agencies were waiting for this spicy story to hit, the newspapers around the country ran sensationalized and occasionally totally made-up stories. The sight of a Sunday school teaching maiden lady accused of such horrible crimes captivated the country that following June when she went on trial. The prosecution's evidence, however, was severely defective, and the jury ruled that Lizzie Borden was not guilty after a two-week trial. She was never free of suspicion, and she spent the remainder of her life as a social outcast. For some reason, though, the Fall River Police Department stated 
that it would not explore any other leads and deemed the investigation closed. That didn't stop media outlets from running stories and claiming, quote, Lizzie Borden used an axe to strike her mother 40 times. When she realized what she had done, she whacked her father 41 times, end quote. These lines have reinforced the image of Lizzie Borden as a hatchet-wielding, cold-blooded murderer for almost a century. However, a jury found the 32-year-old Fall River woman not guilty in less than one hour. So here's the thing. If the evidence was overwhelming, how did they find her not guilty? Without a doubt, a horrific crime was committed. Lizzie's father Andrew and stepmother Abby were murdered in their own house with several axe strikes. Their heads were crushed and mangled to the point of being unrecognizable. The forensic investigation determined that Abby was confronting her attacker at the moment of the attack. She was hit on the side of her head with a hatchet, which cut her just above the ear, forcing her to spin and fall face down on the floor, resulting in cuts and bruises on her nose and forehead. Her attacker attacked her many times, killing her with 17 direct punches to the back of her skull. Whereas Andrew collapsed on a couch in the downstairs sitting room, having been struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet-like object. One of his eyes had been sliced neatly in half, indicating that he had slept when he was killed. The case started changing its direction. It went from claiming Lizzie was the murderer to considering that it happened within the hours of 9.30 and 11 a.m. when Lizzie and Bridget were home but couldn't hear what was going on. It seems that Lizzie entered the parlor only minutes after her father was murdered, and she was greeted with a gruesome image. According to the story, Lizzie is horrified and immediately asks Bridget to fetch a doctor. At the same time, she called the neighbor for help. Another neighbor discovered Miss Borden's body in an upper room a short time later, and they called the police. Lizzie was questioned by the police when they arrived. When it got to the subject of Abby, the police mistakenly referred to her as Lizzie's mother, which made her panic and insist that Abby was a stepmother. Her panic and explosion immediately made her the prime suspect in the case. The police labeled her as a cruel, resentful daughter. She despised her stepmother and murdered her father to stop him from amending his will to favor his wife at the cost of his children. As the case built up, a local druggist stated that Lizzie Borden had desperately tried to buy poison from him the day before the murders. A neighbor reported seeing Lizzie burning a dress several days later. For the police, this seemed like enough information to arrest Lizzie. The case captivated the American people. Newspapers aired horrific, frequently exaggerated, or obviously untrue stories of a decent, church-going, socially involved young woman being converted into a terrible beast. The juxtaposition between the bloody nature of the actions and the refined settings appealed to the public's voyeuristic tendencies. But of course, sensational news stories and the word of two people don't make solid evidence. The prosecution's case began to collapse almost immediately after the trial started. 
There was no blood on Lizzie Borden's clothes when she was discovered at the blood-splattered murder scene. There were also issues with the murder weapon. Andrew Borden's personal attorney was unaware that his client had ever written a will. The defense demonstrated that the burnt garment was worn and paint-stained, and Emma Borden herself had asked Lizzie to get rid of it. Burning just happened to be the household standard way of garbage disposal. Lizzie also testified on oath that the druggist was misinformed. She had not been to his shop and had not asked him for poison. The state could not provide a plausible motive, a murder weapon, or a rationale for how the young woman might have committed the brutal killings while wearing a clean gown. The verdict got mixed emotions, and the media quickly changed their tune, stating that Lizzie Borden should not have been prosecuted. Despite having no real closure, the Fall River Police Department stated that it would not explore any other leads and deemed the investigation closed. According to them, the killer had been forgiven and let go, and nothing was left to be found. For those who believed Lizzie was innocent, the killer remained a mystery. For those who deemed her guilty, she was let off easy. Either way, doubts and suspicions persisted, and Fall River's fine society abandoned the once respectable Miss Lizzie Borden. For many years, August 4th allowed the more sensational press to sell papers by revisiting the unsolved crime and generating new doubts and theories about the case. The jury's decision appeared to slip into history with each passing year. Lizzie Borden was fully established in a popular culture as the culprit of one of the nation's most renowned and enigmatic murders by the time she died in 1927. Her death, however, does not close the case. At least, not for me. What do you think? Who could have been the murderer? Feel free to theorize until part two of this story next week, where I'll present you with the information from the court trials and several theories. <laughs>